0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Raytheon Missiles in Defense, setting the pace of performance. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today, we're going to focus on the digital transformation of the military with several very knowledgeable guests. We're going to begin with Eric Schmidt, the former chief executive of Google who's just co-authored a book with Henry Kissinger and MIT's Daniel Huttenlocker called The Age of AI and Our Human Future. Eric will be joined by Michelle Flournoy, the former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the Obama Obama administration and currently managing partner of WestExec Advisors which tries to bring smaller high-tech companies into the sometimes overwhelming world of Pentagon procurement. Welcome to both Eric and Michelle.
2: Good to see you, David. Thank you, David. Good to see you, Michelle. So, good to
1: Eric, see you let me be- begin with your book. You and Dr. Kissinger and your co-author foresee, C- I'm quoting here, a class of technology that augurs a revolution in human affairs. And perhaps, as Kissinger has written previously, the end of the age of enlightenment, as we think about it. I'd like to ask you to summarize your and Dr. Kissinger's, your, your co-authors' biggest concerns about AI in our political and cultural life, and especially in military competition.
3: Well, first, thanks you. Th- thanks to Washington Post for doing this with us. Um, the book basically says that AI is going to be incredible for all the reasons that everybody knows. It's going to transform biology. We have examples of new drugs that humans could never have designed. New materials, much uh, safer, much stronger. Solutions to climate change because of scale and the way AI works. I can just go on and on and on. It's also a wave that's taking over our entire industry. So AI will be something that will be around you whether you like it or not. Everything will have it embedded in it. In the book, we also say that we are playing with fire in the sense that we're changing assumptions that humans have made for a very long time. In the case of military conflict, one of the core assumptions is human decision time. And in the book, we speak about the problem of the compression of time. And in particular, since these AI systems are neither reliable enough nor predictable enough they have emergent behavior, and they're still learning while they're being doing things. We have a real problem with understanding what they're going to do, and they can be destabilizing in a military grand strategy sense. We also say that AI will be used or misused by our opponents to, for example, change the misinformation space. In other words, we already saw this with election interference. You can imagine this at a scale that's inconceivably large all around us. That's gotta get addressed. And we also talk about the definition of, what does it mean to be human? We're very concerned that we've never had a human-like, but not human intelligence to deal with that's similar to our own. We've always been the top dog, if you will, in the intelligence hierarchy. And now the reason we think it's a new age and not just a new technology, because humans will grow up in the presence of these new AI um, capabilities which will be different from human, but also very powerful and very important.
1: It's a very provocative uh, book. Uh, I urge people to take a look. Um, I want to turn to Michelle uh, and ask you about something you wrote in Foreign Affairs uh, back in June. Uh, The title of the article was, America's Military Risks Losing Its Edge. Your argument is basically that we're locked in inertia and legacy systems uh, for our weapons. Tell us what you think needs to be done to prevent that scenario of America losing its edge.
2: Well, we are the best military in the world and we've we've long thought of ourselves as as that. But if we simply rest on our laurels, um, that won't remain the case. Um, We are in a a real competition with uh, China in particular, but also other powers like Russia who are making major technological investments that will change how we're able to prevent conflict, to deter conflict, and if necessary, fight in the future. And so we have to invest in new technologies and operational concepts, new ways of thinking, uh, thinking new ways of doing business, Um, If we're going to keep our edge and the name of the game here really is preventing conflict, uh, you know, deterring conflict with another nuclear armed power. And so uh, what I argued is that we really need to be moving much more quickly, making investments in key, a number of key areas, including uh, artificial intelligence and here I would just refer everybody to the uh, recommendations of the National Security Commission on AI which Eric uh, co-chaired with Bob work probably the most important commission report since 9 eleven to really to re- that truly really argues uh, lays out a roadmap essentially for how the nation can keep its edge and how we can leverage AI responsibly in the military domain. And I just emphasize that word responsibly. This is gonna be a real challenge. We have to be responsible. We have to be ethical. And there are certain applications of AI in the military space that will not be consistent with American values um, or our interests for that matter. And we've got to sort through those.
1: Eric, you uh, write in your book that uh, I'm quoting here, war has always been uncertain. But it has been guided by one logic, as well as one set of limitations, that of humans. I want to ask you about an AI-driven war. One of the things that frightens me as I think about it is that linkages uh, in in the chain of escalation could be tighter. Uh, Dr. Kissinger or other strategists of nuclear war have always feared those tight linkages driving us toward conflict to ask you about that, and I also want to ask you about whether you think AI-driven warfare will focus on machines killing other machines or machines killing humans.
3: Um, We're just at the beginning of the answer to this question. Um, We started with the question of proliferation. So if you assume that AI will eventually be very powerful, do we have a proliferation problem? And the answer is yes, because we and our opponents are all tracking together in a virtual arms race where we're essentially competing and competing and competing to build out this. Now today, those arms are not focused on each other, but they could easily be because the technology is dual use. So that's the first problem. The second problem is you have to have a theory of how war will emerge, AI-enabled war, and we don't really know. Uh, If you talk to the military, and Michelle is an expert at this, obviously, they'll say that the first war is always in space and in communications. It's cutting off the opponent's communications. We saw this in South Georgia and a couple of other conflicts uh, with involving the Russians a few years ago. So let's assume we're going to have that happen. Let's assume that we survived that initial attack. Now you have a cyber war. And the decisions in a cyber war have to be made faster than human, co- human time. So, so even before we get to the robots killing people, we have this massive set of infrastructure questions about how quickly things attack, who controls them and so forth. When you get to actual automation, the consensus of our National Security Commission was that we wanted AI weapons to be human guided, that improvements in precision are welcome because a lot of deaths in war are collateral in the sense of unintended, unintended or innocent victims and that sort of thing, but that Wars in the future are likely to be significantly dead, deadlier because of AI, because of targeting and the, that sort of thing. Um, we look, took a, li- a, a while looking at this question of command and control, which is what the military would really like. The current command and control systems are so complicated and so poorly built that it's unlikely that in the short ter- term AI can really solve that problem. But the military goal at the eventual, I- I- eventually, is to have a system that watches everything and gives them alerts. And that makes sense to us. The issue here, all of that is straightforward. And the the thing to worry about is the destabilizing nature of launch on warning. And so what's going to happen in our view, view, and we say this in the book, is that eventually you're gonna have two sides, both of whom have, have unknown strengths and unknown weaknesses in their AI systems. One will get jumpy and alert the other that they're about to attack, and the other will actually cause the attack. That's the strange love scenario that is incredibly destabilizing and it's got to get addressed now in terms of military strategy.
1: Eric, let me just follow up with an additional question. You and I have talked in the past about an effort that you led at the Pentagon a couple of years ago to try to develop uh, ethical AI standards. You worked with some of the leading computer scientists uh, at the top companies, universities around the country. How did that go? And did that leave you more or less confident that you could build ethics into this AI future?
3: Well, I was really pleasantly surprised at the military. We issued our report, which by law had to be done to the public, and then the military considered it, and they actually endorsed it and adopted it as their AI framework for military action. So I was really impressed with the sincerity with which our military leadership takes its moral and legal opportunities. There's no question that they care about this. It's interesting that in the conversations that we had, we always assumed, this is just an assumption, that in a real hard kinetic war, all of the rules would be thrown away. And that basically people would do whatever it took to win. Uh, And I'm not talking about the US, I'm talking about our opponents. If that's true, then that's an inherently destabilizing assumption. And since we don't know, we have not had these sorts of AI wars, we don't have a precedent. Dr. Kissinger talks a lot about the nuclear aspect because, of course, he was at the dawn of all of these policies and helped define them. And he points out that the doctrine where there were two, uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and there have not otherwise been uses of nuclear war, means that we have not proven these doctrines. We just think they're correct. And since we have not engaged in these automatic AI kind of wars, we don't really know how humans will behave in the middle of them. And that's unfortunately going to be something we're going to have to learn the hard way.
1: Michelle, you have been one of the top officials at the Pentagon, you know uh, how our military works intimately. Let me ask you two questions. First, what do you think is the risk, likelihood I want to say, of the kind of uh, AI accidental decision-making Uh, destabilizing effect of AI in in warfighting. And second, in your current work with WestExec, are there examples where you've seen companies that have good ideas in this AI space that just can't uh, break through the wall uh, of Pentagon procurement to get their ideas examined and taken seriously?
2: Yeah. Uh, So I think the biggest risk, David, is that the policy and the strategy and the approach to international discussions about this with other countries doesn't keep up with the technological evolution and adoption. That's the biggest risk, is that we find ourselves with the technology ahead of our own thinking and our our. Conceptualization of how we are going to manage this and how we are going to avoid some of the biggest risks that Eric cited. Um, the good news is, I, I do think we are along. We are still many, many years away from what Eric is describing in terms of you know robot on robot AI driven warfare. I, when I look at the Pentagon, they're starting with applications like you know, can we use AI to sort through the overwhelming amount of intelligence and information classified, unclassified that we get from a zillion different sources and find, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, find the insight, find the thing that's going to help us You know, see that the Russians might be preparing to move against Ukraine so that we can get out there and use diplomacy uh, to try to prevent that Um, using AI to help. uh, cyber uh, connections and communications and command and control, um, using AI for things like predictive maintenance, make, making better resource allocations and using taxpayer dollars to support readiness. I mean, these are the kinds of applications that I'm seeing and and those are the companies that are getting traction. It's really the the, I would say, argue benign uses of AI that are very far away from lethal applications. One of the ones you'll hear from today is Brandon Seng from Shield AI, who's using AI to enable um, special operations teams to to map who's inside a potential enemy compound before the first guy goes through the door. And that will hopefully greatly reduce the risk to our men and women in uniform who are in the harm's way. So those are the kinds of near-term applications that I think are progressing, not fast enough maybe, Um, but I don't think they pose the kinds of risks that Eric is talking about when we look to the future and and where this could go over time.
4: Eric,
1: history of uh, arms races uh, is that uh, countries often misperceive their adversaries' strengths and overstate them, sometimes the opposite but many, many cases of overstating. I'm gonna ask you honestly, as you look at Chinese and, and and Russian capabilities in this AI space, do you think that we should worry that we're behind or do, do we seem to be uh, keeping up in an adequate way?
3: So we looked at this question very carefully. Um, we concluded that the Russian teams are quite good but relatively subscale. In you know, other words, just not enough of them to this is a scale business in terms of people and deployment. But we were quite alarmed by the buildup on the Chinese side of core technology money and programs. And this is not just a military thing. Uh, we concluded that we were somewhat ahead. And I'll I will say that I think somewhat ahead is sort of a year kind of number, not a 10-year kind of number, but that. Uh, at the moment, China has prioritized this very high. They're producing more papers, more PhDs. The most recent analysis indicates that the papers that they're producing are of a similar quality to the very good papers from the West. And so I think a fair reading of this is they're very close to us and their goal is to beat us or catch up and, and exceed what we're currently doing. In our report, we we offer a long list of ways to address this. Uh, with very strong recommendations, including increasing funding a national research network, working with our partners in the West, uh, as Michelle mentioned, working on uh, consistent with our own values, et cetera. One of the things that's paradoxical here is that you want to think of a military response, but in fact, most of the work is being done in the private sector. Uh, and that's true in the commercial and the military spaces. So we call for very, very tight links, such as Michelle mentioned between Uh, the military and small companies that can bring this technology to them Um, overall what i would say is we have time to redouble our investment in this overall space it's we made an estimate that this correlated with 50 trillion dollars of expansion of businesses and stock market wealth if we win this battle when winning is defined as staying ahead We also said that we need to stay at least two generations of uh, semiconductor cycles ahead of China, which we are today, but they're investing heavily in that space. That's an argument for the government to help the semiconductor industry with more funds to build domestic plants, et cetera. So we've made all those recommendations. At at the moment, we're in a few-year period where the outcome to your question will be determined. Once the gap is really opened, it will be very hard for us to catch up unless we Resolve it now. I view this as a national emergency.
1: So, Eric, just a brief uh, follow-up. What's your judgment about whether President Xi Jinping's recent uh, attacks, really, uh, through regulatory bodies on China's biggest and most successful AI companies, Alibaba most notably, what effect is that going to have on China's ability to compete?
3: Uh, that
1: could have an intimidating effect on the very people that they're going to need.
3: Well, that is the narrative a lot of people in the West have. So I asked some of my Chinese friends who are very nationalistic, and they said, you guys are wrong. There's a gazillion of these entrepreneurs, and China will regulate the internet and the excesses in because the West has not. The way they say it, is you guys have all sorts of problems. You are not managing your people right, the democracies are failing, This is what they say. And furthermore, you're not managing the internet correctly. The combination of the privacy rules that have been put in place now in China, which are effective November 1, the emergent algorithmic regulations uh, process that China has undertaken, they claim will be used to make a safe and appropriate internet, and that there are tremendous opportunities for innovation or the next generation of entrepreneurs underneath that. Of course, we all know this is their propaganda. We don't know if that's true or not. But what I thought was interesting was we have always treated China as the Wild West of the internet in terms of commercial products. But they're they're grappling with the regulation issues that we have here in the West and they're gonna solve it in their own way. Whatever China does with respect to regulating the internet and AI and so forth, they'll do it consistent with their doctrine, which includes making sure that CCP remains in power.
1: Michelle, I want to turn to another issue that involves China. When strategists think about the danger of of war uh, in the future, they often focus on uh, China, but not simply China, about, about a contest between the United States and China over the future of Taiwan. I want to ask you, you've thought deeply about this for years. What do you think the United States should do and can do to help uh, Taiwan uh, prepare for deter such a conflict, and how explicit do you think we should be in giving some clarity about what we would do if China attacked?
2: So I I do think that we're in a period where um, it's it, the danger of miscalculation is very real, as as Eric noted. If you go to beijing and you turn on the evening news the narrative of us decline you know you know we're inwardly focused we are a mess democracy isn't serving the people we are polarized we're down we're out we're not getting up i mean obviously i don't believe any of that but that's the chinese narrative and if they really start to believe that it could cause them to miscalculate in terms of leaning into a more assertive or even aggressive Stance. I don't think that's likely in the near term because she is really focused on consolidating his power and having his next term of leadership validated in next fall in the late, late 2022. But we need to use this time as the United States to shore up deterrence. So it means showing up in the region diplomatically foremost, but also militarily. It means clarifying our interests and um, our values and what we are committed to defending um, and it means um, really making sure we have the capabilities in place to, to create enough doubt in the Chinese mind about their ability to succeed at low cost that it makes them you know, defer the decision to, to another day in the future. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, I see some signs that the Pentagon and the Biden administration more broadly are leaning forward in this direction, but there are also things I'm looking for that maybe aren't happening as quickly um, as they should. So um, there is a window here, and it's all about um, conveying our resolve and our capabilities to the Chinese. I also think I would just note something that was really important in Eric's uh, book. We need to be talking about to China and Russia about some of the more dangerous escalatory scenarios, Um, the ways in which we could get into a crisis and have things get out of control. We need to talk about those scenarios directly and try to take some of the bad ideas of how to use cyber attacks or anti-space attacks um, off the table uh, as much as possible.
1: Uh, Eric, let me c- close because we're running out of time with with a question for you that follows directly on what Michelle was talking about. We now have strategic stability talks with Russia that are just beginning, that in theory will explore new technologies, new weapons. Should discussion of AI warfare be part of those strategic stability talks? And second, how on earth do we begin such a conversation with China?
3: Um. The answer is yes, and I have no idea how to get started with China, but I think it's crucial, and the the core thing we have to do is collectively de- design the equivalent of the rules that were put in place after both the Cuban Missile Crisis and the original launch, um, 1949 uh, explosion in the Soviet Union. So during that period they worked out what the language was so i i was shocked michelle of course knew this that whenever you launch a missile you let all the other governments you know do it because that way they don't think it's a a threat and they also use it to tune their satellite observation launch systems so it's think of that as a bargain between competitors it's a it's an agreed upon bargain to stand down and lower the um, essentially launch uh, readiness level. We're going to have to do the same thing. We don't have the language, let alone the concept, to even describe what that looks like for enabled, uh, AI-enabled warfare. Uh, in our book, we call for this to be, these issues to be discussed not just by the technical people and the diplomats, but by psychologists, behavioral scientists, and so forth. These issues are too big for any single group to dominate them. We got ourselves into the current predicament in our democracies because we let the tech companies, including you know the, the ones I've been associated with, to do roughly whatever they thought best against their incentives. These AI systems are so powerful that they need to be collectively discussed and collectively managed both at a local as well as a global basis.
1: Absolutely. Fascinating conversation. We'll have to to leave it there. I want to thank Michelle Flournoy and Eric Schmidt for for joining us. I'll be back in a few minutes with a former Navy SEAL who now helps run a company on the cutting edge of AI uh, in national security uses. So please stay with us.
2: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
5: Hello, I'm Jean Meserve. The transformation in warfare is enabled of course, by technology and the defense industry which produces that technology is changing as well. Here with me to discuss is Wes Kramer. He is president of Raytheon Missiles and Defense. Great to have you with us. Well,
0: thanks, it's uh, my pleasure to be here today.
5: Uh, the defense industry, of course, has always been known for innovation. Talk about the shift towards digital design and the difference that is making.
0: Well, you know, I think, you know, digital design goes back a long time. And you look on the software side, we started with a- Agile or Scrum, and we've evolved to DevSecOps. I think what's different now is two things. Uh, one, we are seeing you know, an emerging threat. And we're seeing capabilities from other countries that are in some ways potentially exceeding what we have. And that's driving us to go faster. And at the same time, the technology to enable all of these digital tools to where you could actually do a design in a completely digital environment are also rapidly maturing. And I think it's the nexus of these two things that really has the defense industry right now on the leading edge of digital design or digital engineering.
5: And so does this transformation reduce costs and does it get technologies to market faster?
0: Yeah, Gene, I think that's really the, the, the part that's most exciting about this is both of those. You know we're seeing uh, opportunities for significant reductions, in schedule, which obviously translates to cost, so, you know i'll give you a, one simple example on our on our recent um, flight test where we successfully flew a, a hypersonic scramjet engine. What we saw on that was that the results of the flight test almost perfectly followed what we had modeled or predicted for that, and so now it begs the question of can you go faster to fielding? Do you have to do as much flight testing as maybe we did in the past? can you Truncate that, and with a, a smaller number of flight tests that would cost less and that would accelerate your schedule to be able to feel a capability. And I think that's just one small example of where we're starting to see the benefits of digital engineering.
5: Given the integrated nature of digital transformation, has it changed the relationship between government and industry, or should it?
0: Well, I think it's going to have to, and and I would say that. You know the the DoD is certainly partners in this, and they've been the ones driving for us to do this in industry. So it's definitely a partnership. But it, it, it's we're going to have to make changes on both sides. And you know on the government side, um, we're going to have to contract differently, right? You can't specify an old set of contract uh, deliverables when you're actually going to operate in a digital environment. So for example, today on a critical design review, the 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 artifact is literally thousands of pages of drawings and PowerPoint slides, whereas in a digital environment, it's a model. It's a a 3D model of the system that's then agreed upon. On the defense side, we have to update our business processes because our business processes are around those old ways of doing things. And so we have to update that. And finally, something that we have to jointly work through is how to protect intellectual property. I mean, if you're going to open up a design and everything that your suppliers do and everything that industry does is all in one model, then we have to figure out how do you protect intellectual property? And so those are some of the things that we're all trying to work through right now.
5: As we continue to move towards these digital battlefields, do you have any concerns about how the defense industry itself is adapting or changing?
0: Well, you know, we're uh, in many ways, we're a reflection of our, our customer and there's certainly bureaucracy in the government and in any large defense contractor, there's also bureaucracy in that. So what I was talking about earlier, of this need to break down those barriers, to be able to contract in a different way, um, to be able to protect intellectual property, to be able to refine our business processes such that we can go faster, um, to be able to, through this, integrate Um, small businesses and emerging technology companies, um, those are all challenges that we have to do. But I think that digital design and this digital transformation is a way to do that, um, to not only bring things to market faster, but to do it at a reduced cost and to bring leading technologies to the forefront quicker.
5: Thank you, Wes Kramer, president of Raytheon Missiles and Defense. And now... Back to Washington Post Live.
1: Hello. Uh, For those of us who are just joining us, I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Washington Post. I want to continue our program on the digital transformation of the military with Brandon Sang, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Shield AI, a defense technology company. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Brandon.
4: Hi, David. Great to see you again. Thank you for having me.
1: Good, good to see you again. So you and I uh, met last spring, discussed your company. Uh, I wrote a column about it people can find online uh, last May. Let's just share with people your story. You deployed to Afghanistan as a Navy SEAL. Your unit uh, suffered unnecessary casualties uh, in a deployment in Ruzgan province where you couldn't target a, a building because you didn't know if, if civilians were inside. When you got out, you knew that AI could solve the kind of problem that you and other uh, American troops had faced in these, in these combat zones. Tell us what you did and, and, and how Shield AI is trying to solve the problems you encountered in the field.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, I guess if I could start, uh, Shield AI builds autonomy for everything that flies. We're applying self-driving car technology to aircraft with a core focus on defense. And helping the military operate without GPS or communications, which uh, Eric Schmidt in the previous segment uh, acknowledged those will be the first to go in any sort of conflict. And this is what the military will call a denied environment, and it's arguably the largest challenge the military has as it thinks about great power competition with China, but denied environments is something that I had a lot of experience with as a Navy SEAL, Specifically, going inside buildings where GPS didn't work, communications uh, could fail you, and they were extremely high threat, whether it was uh, barricaded shooters, dynamic shooters, or uh, house-borne IEDs. Um, they are just extremely dangerous environments that uh, you know, autonomous aircraft can help play a, a massive role in, whether it's inside a building or over a large geographic area uh, that is covered with surface-to-air missiles. And so uh, when I was first starting S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, I had a number of conversations with folks from special operations community uh, all the way up to, to pilots, and this, this denied environment thread, uh, this denied environment problem uh, became self-evident the more and more I talked to folks, whether it was a, a Navy SEAL, an Army Special Forces, a Ranger, uh, or a F-18 pilot or an F-22 pilot talking about the challenges uh, that they experienced and that they saw coming. It was, how do we operate in denied environments? And this new technology, AI, self-driving car technology, was really a solution that scaled up very nicely uh, for the military's problems.
1: So I, I should just explain for our viewers, when you say denied area, area, Brendan, what you mean basically is that there's a, an EW uh, electronic warfare uh, uh, cloud, if you will, that's preventing uh, the system from communicating, taking directions from some central uh, 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 driver. You have a product that you call Hive Mind that your people showed me that puts the the AI thinking part at the edge, so to speak, with each individual quadcopter or, or, or even airplane, uh, big uh, predator-like drone. Explain how that uh, uh, edge technology, edge AI technology, works in practice and why it's important.
4: Sure. Um, so, it, again, very similar to self-driving car technology. And the best way to think of that is there are sensors on board, an aircraft, a robot, a drone, And these sensors are taking in information about the world much the same way that you or i use our sensors our eyes our nose our our sense of hearing sense of smell sense of taste to take in information about the world and then there is a computer on board that processes this information creates a a map of the world uh, or a perception of the world and uh, informs the aircraft the drone the robot of what to do next very very similar to uh you know you or i our, our brain takes in all our sensor information and then we make decisions uh about where to go in the world and that is essentially what hive mind is doing uh on board these aircraft
1: i should tell viewers i watched a, a drone equipped with this technology essentially do a surveillance of a building a building it had never seen it had no guidance from outside just went room to room mapped it and then gave uh, the hypothetical warfighter outside a clear picture of what what there was in, inside. But I ask you about other things that S.H.I.E.L.D., your company, is doing, uh, in part through acquisitions. You just acquired from a company called Martin UAV something called VBAT, uh, which is a vertical takeoff and landing uh, system. Tell us about about that, what advantages it has, why you thought it was attractive, and how you hope to use your AI technology to make it uh, smarter and, and more effective.
4: Sure. Um, the VBAT is uh, its a really incredible aircraft. Uh, you know, uh, it is a, a Goldilocks aircraft. It, there's really uh, no other aircraft out there like it of its size and class. Uh, it stands vertically and takes off like a, a SpaceX rocket and, and lands like a SpaceX rocket as well. Um, and uh, has up to twelve hours of endurance while carrying uh, twenty pounds of payload um, that can be you know modified if you carry more payload, you can fly for less hours, or if you carry less quick payload, you can fly for longer hours. And it is um, replacing many of the legacy aircraft uh, that the u s military uses today via many of their their different programs of record. And what you know, when we looked at the aircraft, when we looked at the asset, and we took a lot, you know, a very broad view. Uh, we studied all the other competitive aircraft out there, and when we eventually made the decision to pull the trigger, um, it had to be a great piece of hardware, which it is. But it also had to be very adaptable to our AI and autonomy stack hive mind. Because our focus over the next uh, two years, and and we'll operationalize this by 2023, is to integrate HiveMind on the VBAT. And what that will do is allow the aircraft to swarm uh, intelligently with uh, other VBATs. It will enable GPS-denied and communications-denied flight. Uh, it'll ena- enable nap of the earth flight profiles, uh, and then it will also enable the ability to learn new mission sets, anything from escorting an aircraft to penetrating an integrated air defense system. And uh, for us, it was really the next evolution uh, on our roadmap. You know, proving something out on a on a quadcopter is what we did initially, uh, proving that Hive Mind could run on that, and now uh, we're taking the next step in Uh, Operationalizing HiveMind on board uh, 135 pound aircraft. And then, you know, our our aim, as, uh, you know, Eric Schmidt uh, spoke earlier, uh, is to really have HiveMind running on all aircraft uh, at at some point in time. And, um, you know, that'll take a very long time to get to, but uh, those are the steps that we're taking.
1: I want to ask you specifically, uh, Brandon, about uh, putting uh, your AI. System uh, you call hive mind uh, in aircraft that you have made another acquisition that uh, interested me. Looking uh, online, uh, in effect, uh, developing AI pilots um, uh, for for uh, aircraft from a company called Heron Systems. And reading about that, I, I read about DARPA's sponsorship of what sound like basically AI pilot dogfights, where different AI pilots compete uh, to see which one uh, can shoot down the, uh, more of, of the adversary. Just to explain to people who don't know anything about this space uh, what's going on, and are we going to get to the point where we'll have F-35s that will be driven by an AI pilot, not a human pilot?
4: Uh Yes, and, and yes, I'm happy to, uh, to give a, a quick overview. At, at least that's the aim, and I, and I think that's the direction uh, that we're going. Um, and, I, and I do want to state, I believe human pilots will continue to play an incredibly important role. Uh, but we, we bought Heron um, largely to pursue uh, our objective of getting hive mind uh, and AI pilots on all aircraft. Uh, and Heron Systems had proven out uh, its AI in a competition with DARPA, uh, sponsored by DARPA, uh, where it was to design an AI to take on human pilots. They called it uh, Alpha Dogfight. And what Harem proved out was they had built an AI that uh, was dominant. Uh, it could defeat extremely uh, experienced pilots. Uh, its win record is in you know the 99th percentile going up against humans humans and other ai pilots uh and so for that reason we made the acquisition but the the aim that's a that's a longer play uh to get our ai hive mind on board uh these these larger more exquisite uh aircraft
1: so i just want to pause and uh, ask our viewers to reflect on that We, we have computers that can now beat humans in chess. We have computer deep uh, learning systems that can beat humans in a far more complicated game called Go. And if I understand what Brandon just said, we're going to have AI systems, computers, that will be able to outperform human pilots in a dogfight in some future combat scenario. Is that right?
4: Uh, that, is, that is correct, and I think what, you know, what's been really, you know, Eric spoke to, to why AI is such a powerful technology. It is because it unlocks superhuman performance, um, and what's really exciting is for the first time in history, you can actually take that AI and you can put it on physical systems. So we've had our, our quadcopter uh, beat uh, teams of, of clearance operators uh, in the clearance of a building. Um, based on the time on the target. We've had, you know, Heron Systems um, beat F-16 pilots uh, in air-to-air combat. And so uh, their AI is an incredibly powerful tool. You can train it to do uh, certain things very, very well. And that is, um, you know, I think that'll, that'll unlock transformational capability uh for uh the the warfighter for the military but it, at the same time um it it unlocks a, a whole host of other capabilities as we think about uh the commercial sector brandon
1: the last a qu- a quick question our previous panel w- with uh, eric schmidt uh, and michelle forna really stressed the the dangers of ai you have served in combat as a as a navy SEAL. you know the face and the cost of warfare. Do you think that AI can can make future warfare less lethal for human beings?
4: Uh, yes, yes, I do think uh, it will make uh, warfare less lethal for human beings. Um, first, I, I think it's it's nothing like Hollywood, which is where everybody's mind goes to. It's, it's not Terminator or The Matrix, uh, you know. I, I, but on on a serious note, as as a former SEAL. Uh, I know how fundamentally human the decision is to take a life in combat. I also understand the role that technology, AI, and autonomy can play and how it can be a literal lifesaver for a warfighter or for a civilian that's stuck in a conflict zone. And I also understand the care to which our military deploys combat power and powerful technologies. And, and I want this audience to understand uh, or you know, help realize that there, how much care this actually is, and how much thought and how much process uh, goes into wielding these technologies, wielding these uh, capabilities on the battlefield. It is an astounding amount of of care and thought and process. And what AI will enable is uh, our warfighters to operate with greater speed, greater accuracy, uh, persistence, precision, reach, and coordination. Uh, and ultimately help protect our warfighters, help protect civilians, uh, and prevent collateral damage.
1: Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, We'll have to leave it there. Uh, Brandon, thank you so much for explaining what your company, SHIELD AI, does. uh, And We really appreciate your coming.
0: Thanks
2: for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.